Hey folks, this is Katie here. Just wanted to give you a little warning about today's wonderful episode with Julia Clavins. We are touching on some heavy topics. We will be talking about forensic teaching associates. We will be touching on subjects such as sexual violence and sexual assault. So we want you all to be safe and take care of yourselves. And if that means skipping today's episode, that is 100% okay. If not, you can go ahead and listen in. Welcome to the Standardized Patients Podcast. I am your host and new mom, Katie Culligan. In this podcast, we dive into the who, what, why, and huh of this quirky industry that no one's ever heard of. So, what is a standardized patient, you may ask? Well, a standardized patient is a... Excellent actor, an expert thinker, and someone with the memory of an elephant and the heart of a lion. Awesome. That sounds like a Wizard of Oz (laughs) send-off there. Here we go. We're going into Oz. Going into Oz. I love it. It is a magical world, a magical world of SPs. So (laughs) thank you so much. So that is our guest, Julia Clavins, who just gave that wonderful definition of a standardized patient. Thank you, Julia, for being here today with us. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm so happy you're here. Julia Clavins is a genitourinary teaching associate, forensics teaching associate, physical exam teaching associate, and standardized patient based in the Washington, D.C. metro area in Southern California. She has been active in the clinical skills field since 2015 when she first became a standardized patient as an extension of her work as a professional actor. Recently, Julia pioneered the first in-house training program for forensic teaching associates at DC Forensic Nurse Examiners, and she will be presenting about her curriculum in the International Association of Forensic Nurses Conferences very soon. So welcome. That is quite an Awesome, extensive bio, especially in the SP world, because I know you before being an SP as an actor. We were in a show together, a really interesting show a together. A show that will not be named, I think we can both agree upon. Yes, yes. That brought us very close together, Katie. It did, yes. <laughs> and it was a fun cast. We had a great cast, and I'm so glad that we got to meet, and I got to see Julia's wonderful acting and singing and dancing skills. She can do it all. So. Likewise. <laughs> oh, that's right. You saw my dancing, so I don't know about that. You're but, great. Um, <laughs> we still we still had some fun times. We did. Um, it's so interesting because during that experience, while we were in rehearsals for that show, and this was 2016, mm-hmm. I remember I was doing standardized patient work, and then I'd come to rehearsal at night. You were doing standardized patient work, and I think also talking about the Buddha work while we were in rehearsals, and I just was like, oh, ding, 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 very cool. Yeah. So, and I could I could see your passion for that and hear your passion when you talked about it. So I'm so glad to have you on here and to talk a little bit deeper into these topics. Thank you. So, I'm always really happy to tell people about the weird and important stuff that we do. So since we're going to be talking about the Gouda and Forensic program, in our season one episode with Emily Suture, we did discuss Gouda and PETA. We're going to continue talking about Gouda work as well. 
And then we'll get into the forensic program that Julia was talking about in her bio. So Julia, tell the audience what a Gouda is to you. Yeah. So just to refresh, Gouda stands for Genitourinary Teaching Associate. You'll also hear it called a Gynecological Teaching Associate. And that is sort of a extension of their standardized patient. So it's someone who's specially trained to instruct learners, usually medical students or residents, how to perform the genital exams, so breast and pelvic exams. And we use our own bodies as teaching tools. So it gives people the opportunity to practice those clinical skills, to hone their technique, and also figure out how to fumble over their words and figure out the communication that's so important in those sensitive and vulnerable exams. And so moving that into the forensic teaching associates, it's really similar, except instead of the well patient exam, this would be the forensic exam that people might seek out after they've experienced a traumatic event and specifically a sexual assault. So this is the sexual assault exam. That's pretty heavy. It is Um, heavy. Yeah, it's a heavy subject matter. So, you know, if that's something that is difficult for you to listen to, just take care of yourself. We might just talk about the realities that sexual assault does happen, but I will see where the conversation goes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And personally don't know too much about this program beyond what you've told me a little bit. So you do the Gouda work and that leads itself into the forensic program. You created this program, is that correct? Yeah. So to sort of backtrack and connect the dots how I ended up doing this, I was first hired as a Gouda to be what's called a medical model. So that's just somebody who allows learners to practice these sensitive exams on their body, but they're not expected to provide any instruction or any sophisticated feedback. But sometimes Goudas are hired to do that because they just have a little extra knowledge, can give a pointer here and there. They can help protect themselves from injury a little bit better. And so I was referred to a hospital because there really aren't any training programs for forensic nurses that exist for solely educational purposes. They're just hospitals that run preceptorships. So learners, nurses just learn on the job by shadowing another nurse. So the next best thing would be hiring a medical model so that a learner can practice on a real body that's not a patient that's recently been traumatized. So I first met a whole bunch of forensic nurses doing that, and I was lucky to cross paths with the CEO of a nonprofit in DC, and she felt very inspired by the work with the Gudas and um, tons of props to her, sought out lots of grants and connections to try to establish a program of her own here in DC. Wow, that's super cool. And what year was that? So this is very recent. This is 2020. So I got trained in 2020 in February. Great timing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But we actually stayed up and running throughout the pandemic because, as you can imagine, the world doesn't stop just because it's a pandemic. So there was still a great need. And so we've been kicking ever since. Wow. That's super cool and so important. Thank you. Are you involved in it on a weekly, monthly basis? So I would say, because I'm now the lead trainer, so I'm involved on a daily basis because I'm (laughs) always refining and sending emails and preparing a presentation or a project or working on my curriculum or reaching out to prospective trainees. But we run a clinical skills lab that helps certify sexual assault nurse examiners, maybe six 
times a year, something like that. And then on top of that, forensic teaching associates also help run specific skills labs. So maybe they need practice learning how to take photography because that's a big part of the documentation of the exam or how to use dye that can help make that photography more effective. So those events add up and it might be handful of times a year. So it started in 2020. Now you're basically working on it on a daily basis. And how many people would you say do you typically work with, like who are connected with the program all of the time? Other FTAs, you mean? Mm -hmm. There are eight of us. And because this is a cutting edge field, I'm not even sure how many FTAs exist in the world. I only know of two others, and those are the two that initially trained me. I'm hoping to go out and find more, but those are the kinds of numbers that we're looking at for who is doing this sort of work. Wowee. So Mm -hmm. I guess this is kind of a, you know, maybe call to action. If there's anyone listening to this episode that either is that or knows of someone that is, please let us know so we can tell Julia. Yes, please. (laughs) You can Trying to build that community, share resources. Exactly. Yeah. So the way that I think of this is it's all very traumatic, right? What you all are dealing with, with all of your cases, it's always a traumatic scenario. Yeah. So a lot of the work that I do is actually removing the scenario from the learning environment. So a standard session that I run, I'll be working with three or four registered nurses. Some of them have been sexual nurse examiners for years and are just looking to refresh or recertify. Others are brand new to the field, and I am treating them all exactly the same. We're all starting with a clean slate, and I'm introducing them to best practices for patient communication all the way from the beginning of the exam with when they meet their patient in the waiting room of the hospital to when they bring them back to the exam room, when they take down all the necessary paperwork, which is a lot, when they open the kit, and begin the chain of custody and have to deal with all the swabs and all the envelopes and all the labeling when they take down the story in the patient's own words verbatim and when they then proceed through a physical exam which includes a head-to-toe exam and a genital exam so it is a long grueling exam so it's a lot of information just to take in without dealing with the reality of a patient that is probably having one of the worst days of their life, if not the worst day of their life. So we remove the scenario and the stakes so that we are in a safe and controlled learning environment for everyone. So that means that it's trauma-informed from beginning to end, both for me as the FTA, who is the proxy patient, and for my nurses, because I don't know what they've been through or what they've seen. So every Mm. single step of my teaching, I aim to make trauma-informed. How long would you say one of those exams lasts for a person? So a real exam is probably somewhere between two and eight hours. Wow. And it's usually just one sexual assault nurse examiner, which I'll just call SANE for abbreviation sake, S-A-N-E, SANE or SAFE. It's a long exam and there's only one nurse, the patient, and the patient can opt to have a victim advocate present. Otherwise, that nurse is doing everything themselves and, you know, trying to make it as comfortable as possible for the patient to want to endure potentially a long invasive exam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
then to follow up on that, what's the difference between a two-hour exam and an eight-hour exam in terms of why? That's actually a great question. So one of the things we do when the patient is telling what's called their trauma narrative, so when they're telling their story as it happened to them, is the nurse examiner is taking note of what happened to them and therefore what exam maneuvers are indicated. So if they had no genital contact, you wouldn't need to do a genital exam. Why would you put somebody through that unless it was needed? And you could take that down and down different layers. So if they only mentioned having vaginal contact, you would never do an anal exam. We want to be as least invasive as possible. So my guess is that a shorter exam would just be simpler in terms of what's indicated. So sometimes they're elongated because a patient could come in and be utterly exhausted. You never know how the patient's going to present and any way they present is normal. So they could be tired and need to take a nap before they can really give consent and proceed. Or they might be inebriated And you need to wait for them to be in a clear state of mind in order to give consent and proceed. So those kinds of things can also stretch out the timeline. That's fascinating. It is. It's a lot to think about. You have to be really emotionally intelligent. And these nurses that do this work are incredible. Have you seen any that have needed to work on that emotional intelligence a lot? Like that they, they really need some help with that? Not a lot, a lot. I think most people that get into this biz have a really good heart and are already really compassionate because in order to want to expose yourself to this subject matter and to be so up close and personal with patients, you know, having just experienced traumatized, you you tend to be a good person. But I think the thing that we worry about is burnout. So just ways to continue to find compassionate gestures, ways to stay present, ways to stay energetic and aware throughout these exams. Those are things that I can help my nurses with, but rarely does it come down to sort of a lack of empathy. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. It gives me a lot of optimism to meet these nurses. So when we're talking about a subject matter that's really heavy, we're talking about really awful things that bad people have done. Meeting these nurses and feeling taken care of them as their patient makes me feel like there are a lot of good people in the world. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. So I'm curious, logistically, when you do run these examinations, like the encounters, are they always a certain amount of time? Like you have two hours or you have six hours. How does that work? Yes. So I usually have an hour and a half or two hours to teach them all of my content. So time management is one of those underrated skills that you need to be any sort of teaching associate because you've got a lot of content to impart, a lot of clinical skills, and you also want to build that rapport and be able to engage and field any questions. So yeah, it's usually about two hours and then I'll switch rooms and do a second encounter back to back with a different set of learners. Wow. Since this started around the time of the pandemic, closing everything down, Were you primarily over Zoom or did you do hybrid, in person? In person. Wow. Double masks, face shields, waves and waves and tsunamis of hand sanitizer. We were working throughout the pandemic. Wow. And these were the same nurses that were working in the ICU too Mm. because the sexual assault exam usually happens in an emergency department. So there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so grateful to hear that there's a program like that out there. Thank you. So so thank you. And to the person who 
you were mentioning earlier that also, you know, helped put it all together. That's just really incredible. So I know this is, you know, obviously a very challenging and heavy topic as we've already figured out, but I wonder, have there been any lighthearted or funny moments that have come about? Of course. Yeah. You have to, you can't do this and not have a sense of humor and not laugh at yourself. Like one thing that comes to mind, and this happened really recently. So I asked my students to role play with me and treat me as their patient. And I had a really eager student. She was like, hands in the sky. I'm going to go first, which rarely happens that they volunteer to go first. And, you know, she pretends to knock on the door and she comes in, she introduces herself. She gives me her pronouns she asks me how I want to be called. She begins with a beautiful, empathetic statement. You know, I'm, I'm so sorry to meet you under these circumstances, but it's my privilege to take care of you. She's just like an all-star. And she goes, okay, I'm going to get started with the exam. So the first thing I'll do is wash my hands. And she walks over to the counter and squeezes the gel in her hands and starts rubbing it. And then she stops dead in her tracks and goes, oh my God, I just put the lube all over my hands. And she had picked up the wrong tube. And it was just, it was magnificent. No one's ever done that. Occupational hazard. That's really, really funny. It's hysterical. Oh. <laughs> I bet it took her a few minutes to get that off, huh? It did. Yes. And I think it gave us all, it was, it was such a nice icebreaker, right? Because everyone's super nervous to go. And then you just make that incredible, epic, dumb move. <laughs> I mean, it does look like hand sanitizer, I, I'm sure. To be fair, the bottles were identical. Like both had the little CVS logo on them. Thank you, CVS. But... <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was pretty great. And like her back was turned, so I didn't see her. I couldn't see that she was doing it. So all I saw was just the realization dawning on her face that she just had like an ounce of KY jelly <laughs> all over her hands. Oh, that's that is epic. And she yeah. will never forget that. She will never and forget you that. We'll never forget that either. Anyone no. that was watching. <laughs> no. I really wanted to see her try to put gloves on. Like if she had just committed to the mistake. And then tried to put gloves on with her slippery hands, but I let her go wash them and start over. Maybe if it was a different student who would just would have been like, okay, we're just yeah, gonna, like yeah. too embarrassed to admit what had happened. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I love I that. Love Thank that you for story. sharing that. Yes. <laughs> we talked about this when I interviewed Cliff in season one, mm -hmm. the whole like breaking bad news or challenging traumatic cases. It could be telling someone that they have cancer. And I've done in the past an unintended intercourse case as mm. a SP, not as a PETA, not as a SPI, not as a Gouda. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, have you done those now that you have this really targeted background of, with what you're doing with the forensic program? Have you done any of those other cases like that at other schools and how has that affected you? Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, it's just another exercise in being technical when you need to be and being soft and open when you need to be. So for instance, if I'm doing a simulation where I am playing a patient that's come into the emergency room, usually for the first half of that simulation, when I'm meeting the nurse and I'm telling my story, I just kind of have to let go of my SP brain and try to be as real and as vulnerable as possible. 
but then when the exam starts, I have to flip a little switch and be really technical. Mm. And so I have to make the choice to let maybe the reality, like compartmentalize the reality of the case a little bit, because that's then when I have to look out for my body. And translating that to other cases of difficult news, it's been helpful because I realize that I don't have to have all guns ablazing for the entire encounter. I think as actors, we think, okay, I've got to have like a three act drama and I've got to be like at a high intensity the whole time. And really, it's just about like, do you have a moment where the learner can really see the stakes of your situation or see the depth of your pain? And if it comes through, you don't need to keep pushing yourself to be at that level. Then Mm -hmm. you can let that moment pass and move into a different headspace where you're more thinking about what kind of feedback can you give them Mm -hmm. or how to receive the counseling. So maybe just breaking up the cases into chapters so Mm -hmm. that it's not all emotional and then you're just a wet rag at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that was actually going to be my next question for you is particularly when you're doing the forensics work, Mm -hmm. how do you decompress either at the end of the day or in between times when you're, you're portraying it particularly or even just teaching the material? Such a good question. And that's something that is something that I'm working on articulating better now that I'm a trainer because I really want to impart that self-care. And I think it's it's individual. For me, I'm a fire sign, so I need water. So I will I will go to the bathroom and I will just rinse my face and I will probably just say something in my head like I'm rinsing off what just happened. And similarly, at the end of the day, the first thing I do when I get home is take a shower. The reality is, however safe and empowered I am, it's lots of different people's hands on me. So just washing off the day makes me feel renewed. Mm. And making sure that there is enough break time, advocating for that break time, also having camaraderie with my fellow FTAs or fellow Gudas has been really important just to have those water cooler moments where we say, hey, was how was your session? Oh, somebody said this weird thing or somebody did that funny thing. And being able to sort of diffuse it and, and talk it out is really, really helpful so that you don't feel kind of alone in this really tricky, vulnerable work. And that's good that you know at least through time, what you need and that you are figuring out how to articulate that to other people. Have you found that that's been helpful training people and using some of those tactics? It has because I also learn from the people that I'm training. You know, when they come and tell me what has been helping them, I go off and I try that too. So the more people that I bring into this field, the more people are actively working in it, the more people are actively improving in it and sharing their experiences and knowledge. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely been helpful. And also, you know, I have to walk the walk then. I have to model how to take care of myself and how to run things the way that they should so that we can all keep our endurance and keep our spirits up. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, I'm sure there are so many answers to my next question, but if you had to pick something that you would find to be the most or close to the most meaningful moment that you've had doing this kind of work, what what would that be? Oh, wow. I know. I'm sorry. That's a tough question. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches because like we've said, even though it's heavy, 
the feedback is just so gratifying, you know, to have a nurse that says, I've been doing this for 30 years, but today I learned a way that just works better. You know, that'll boost your ego. But it's also, you know, I actually think being a trainer has been one of the more beautiful and meaningful experiences because, I mean, to put it frankly, there have been a few instances where I've shown someone their body for the first time. Wow. You know, like someone who's, I'm going to spout some anatomy here, someone who's never seen their clitoris before or never seen their cervix. And just to have the veil lifted on your own body and what it's capable of doing and seeing how unique and perfect you are just as you are and then becoming comfortable enough in your own body to share it for the benefit of people who really need it. It's mm. just, I mean, words fail. So it's it's just really gratifying to see people have that evolving relationship with themselves and then mm. be, you know, generous enough to do this work. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's something I don't think I really thought about, but you're right. You're showing them certain elements that they probably it's wild experienced. Yeah. I mean, most people don't look and that's totally fine if that's not your thing. But also, <laughs> if you happen to have a little blush compact or a mirror lying around, just look. <laughs> our, our vulvas are as unique as our faces, mm. you know? So it's just, it's very cool to know what you look like and what's your normal and therefore what's your healthy. Absolutely. The more yeah. you know, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. It literally wow. is power. It will make you feel more powerful to know what your body can do. Now, I have to ask, mm -hmm. with all of this work in mind, have you had some people that you have trained or maybe even just worked with that tried it out and it just wasn't for them? Yes. So, and that is their prerogative. One of the things that I've been working on as a trainer is our recruitment process. And we aim to be, like I said, trauma-informed from beginning to end. So when right when we put out the flyer, we try to be as transparent as possible about what the FTA role entails, what the content is, and what the risks are. And we have long interviews. We have a couple interviews. And even still, you just, you don't know. You don't know what's going to come up for you when you start training in person, when you get up on the exam table and you're going through it. And so, yeah, we've had some people discover that even if they really feel connected and have a strong sense of purpose, that it's just not a good fit for them. And one of the things that I love about my organization is that we invest in our trainees without the expectation or demand that you then become an active FTA. So we pay people to train and we understand that at the end of the training or even partway through the training, you might say, this isn't for me. This isn't what's best for me. And we go, we love that for you. Thank you for your contributions. We hope to stay in touch and interact somehow. And that is totally fine. So yeah, some people, it is too triggering for them. You know, some people, it's just, it's too much content to learn. You know, mm -hmm. you have to be a really expert clinical skills instructor. And so yeah. you have to learn a ton of information and put in a ton of work. And some people, their schedules just don't work because, again, this is a casual contractor situation. And so it's hard <laughs> just to nail people down. And boy, yeah. do I get that too. So that's why, you know, we really treasure the folks that we have in our mix because we understand that a lot of things have to fall into place in order to be a working FTA. Yeah. And would you say that most working FTAs started out as good as no. somewhere else? Oh, no. Yeah, this is really cool. So all of our recruiting is just grassroots through our networks. So, you know, a lot of the nurses 
know people that are victim advocates. So I would actually say that our most common pool that we draw from is from the victim advocates. And this is actually really helpful because these are folks that have sat in on hundreds of exams. Wow. So they have an intimate knowledge of how the exams work. And also they've witnessed things go very right. They've witnessed things go wrong. And they just, they have their wealth of information for their future learners. So I would say that's our most common background, but we've got somebody that's a lab scientist, somebody that's a music teacher. Huh. I've got two other Goudas that I've roped in. <laughs> so yeah, we don't expect people to have any prior experience or even any directly related experience. We just... Wow. People that feel interested and willing and really that show the people skills and the compassion and the intellect for it. And then we take them, we run with it. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So what is your hope for this program as it continues? My hope is that the use of forensic teaching associates becomes the norm. I understand that it takes a lot of time and effort to make that happen. But when you explain to people that most nurses are learning on traumatized individuals. It makes sense to almost everyone that you should not be practicing this on a traumatized individual. Yeah. So my hope is that more and more people, you know, catch on to what we're doing and that hospitals that I would expect have the money to spend could invest a little bit in these programs mm -hmm. and hire me, fly me out. And I'll come teach you how to do it, whether it's in-house or whether we're moving around and just kind of dropping our knowledge across the country. My hope is that this would become the norm in any hospital that has a sexual assault nurse examiner on staff. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that and all of this information about the program and your experience. So what you guys are doing is amazing and is only helping people in the world, as I'm sure you all are aware of. But I really hope that people listening to this, whoever you may be, <laughs> could find this helpful or maybe even inspiring to create a program or at least reach out to you and find out more about how you could create a program in different areas. Yeah, I think there's yeah. all sorts of opportunities that could spring up from this. So we're I'm trying to get it right. That's why I'm working on honing this curriculum with my coworkers because I really want to nail down like what's the most compassionate and comprehensive way to train people to do this so that then we can just take over the world. Ooh, I love Ooh. it. So I have to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Julia Clavins, for being our guest today and exploring and sharing all of your information. Where can we find you? Well, gosh, I'm on the internet. You can find me on Instagram at Julia Clavins, and my website is juliaclavins.com. And we will link to that in our show notes as well. So once again, thank you for your time and your energy and what you are doing for the future of all doctors and patients and med students, et cetera, in this world. And I can't wait to see where that program goes. Thank you. And thank you, you Katie, on. for spreading the gospel of what we do and making it more important. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're having fun and we're happy to be in season two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. Season two. All right. And to everybody else, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the Standardized Patients Podcast. Thanks to Randy Sharp for the use of our theme song, Mr. Garita. And you can find their music at Artlist. Thank you, as always, to Catherine Bobolek for the behind-the-scenes work, audio post-production, and our cover art. 
That's our show. See you next time as we encounter more standards of standardized patient work.